Well, good morning, ZPC, and uh, you know, this is by far my least favorite of Sundays. Uh, you know, you miss an hour of sleep, but I want you to know that I am appreciative of you missing that hour and still being here. What really is, what, like 7, 17 in the morning. It's even impressive for those of you who are watching from home um, to have been awake, but, uh, but there was a beautiful sunrise this morning that we might not have seen had it not been for this. So those are the blessings um, that I keep trying to remind myself uh, as I want to fall back asleep again. So, uh, but what a blessing it is to be here with you this morning. Um, if you came in today and you thought, you know, something seems a little different. I can't quite tell what it is. We have begun to paint uh, some of our sanctuary, and so uh, we are beginning to kind of, I don't know how long we've had these colors up, but I'm guessing it's been, uh, Scott, you told me it was, um, actually you didn't tell me anything, I was just going to make something up, but I don't, um, 20 years, something like that, it's been a little while, so uh, we're beginning to do that. It'll take about two more weeks, probably, something like that for us to complete it, but just trying to kind of freshen it up a little bit, so if you thought, hey, something seems a little different, you are right, and so well done on this morning. And today we are continuing our look um, um, through the New Testament, through our series Grace Dangerous, and we are looking at the Gospel of Mark today, uh, chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. And this is a good, challenging passage. And if this doesn't wake you up this morning, then nothing will. Let's begin and see what Mark has to say to us today. Mark says this, as he, being Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money in heaven, then come follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were perplexed at these words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we gather this morning early, and yet we know that you were up well before we were. So we give you praise for that. 
Lord, we admit, especially after a story like this one today, that following you is not easy. And yet we are reminded even in the midst of that, that you are there full of love and grace to walk with us in this journey. Where there are hearts and minds that are resistant, Lord, I pray that you would soften us, that we might hear not what we want you to say, but what you have actually said. Make yourself known. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. All right, so as we kind of look at this passage, let's make sure that we know and see exactly what is happening. Jesus is just about uh, to venture off to the next town, to the next part of his ministry. As we know, we see Jesus is constantly traveling, constantly journeying from one place to the next. It appears he's kind of gotten his stuff gathered. He, he has his bags all packed. The, the picnic lunches are all made. And, and they're just about to begin venturing off when a man, Mark tells us, runs up to Jesus and kneels before him. I have to say, I've heard this story a lot of times, and I don't ever remember that particular detail. This detail of a man who was running up, it seems, as a way of being afraid that he might have missed Jesus and wanting to make sure he, he catches him. I, I love that image because it's a sense of, uh, you almost feel this sense of anxiety, this, this fear, this, this thought that, hey, I, I, I know that I'm missing something, but, but maybe you have the answer. And so I, I, you, you kind of picture that he, that he runs up and maybe he's still panting. Maybe a part of the reason why he's kneeling down is simply to catch his breath after running up and finally finding him. And he's, and he's there and he's, you know, he's, he's breathing and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's no small question. And so Jesus looks at him and says, well, you, you, you just need, you need to follow the commandments. And you, you know, the commandments like, uh, you know, uh, honoring your, your father and your, and your mother and, you know, not lying, not coveting. You know, you know these commandments. And, 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 and the man, you know, still kind of kneeling down says, yeah, I, I, I know. And, and in fact, he says to Jesus, I've, I've been doing this uh, from my youth. I've been doing those things. And a lot of times when we talk about the man, this particular man, we think, oh, well, gee whiz, who would say that they've been doing all those things? He must be arrogant or something, but I, it's not really what I catch from this guy. Someone who's running up to Jesus out of desperation is, is not necessarily someone who's a narcissist. In fact, I, I, my impression of this guy is, is this is the kind of guy who, who knows how to get things done. He's the kind of guy who writes out a to-do list every day, and before he goes to bed, you know what? He has scratched off everyone. He's the kind of guy who makes New Year's resolutions, but actually accomplishes them. He's the kind of guy who 
whose word is his bond. Uh, He's at worship every week, uh, even in those moments when they've, you know, moved forward one hour. He's he's the kind of guy who checks on his mom every afternoon. That's the kind of guy that we have in this story. And, And so I think we should just take him at his word. Yeah, okay, this is who you are. And And Jesus also, it seems, is not surprised by this. He doesn't counter that at all. He seems to believe this man. And in fact, in this moment, we have this incredibly precious moment. I I hope that you didn't overlook it. It's it's one of the the most tender moments, I think, perhaps in, in, in any of the Gospels, because we're told at this time that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Think about that. Just think about Jesus looking at this man who was desperate to know, what, what am I missing here? I, I need peace. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. He, he looked at a man who had been faithful and he loved him. He looked at a man who was actually doing the commandments. He, he looked at this man who was running after him because he was so desperate and he loved him. It's a bit, I think, like looking at a newborn, right? And, and, and you see this child, you know, that had been hidden for nine months and all of a sudden there they are and you look at this object of your affection and your, your heart begins to well, your, your, your eyes begin to well, your, your whole body begins to well up as you see this thing that you love. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And he loved him so much, of course, that he had to be honest with him. He saw him so clearly that he had to tell him the truth. He, he loved him so desperately that he wanted to make sure that he understood why he was running, why he wasn't content, why he wasn't yet at peace. So he told him, you lack one thing. Again, if you know this guy, you know the guy's kind of leaning in. He's like, finally, someone's going to tell me the one thing that I'm missing. And he's got his pencil out and he's, you know, he's, 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 he's licked it off his tongue. I don't know why we do that, but he, you know, and he is ready. He's leaning in. He's like, finally, all of my anxieties and worries. And, and you know that as soon as Jesus tells him this, right, you, you know, he's going to write it down and he's going he's gonna to run off and he's going to do whatever it is. And then he's going to scratch that off and he's going to say, finally. And so he leads in and Jesus says, you lack what? One thing, just one thing, I knew I was close. Go, go. Sell what you own. Sell. Give to the poor. Give. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Get this sense that every time Jesus made each little statement like go and sell and give and come and follow, that the man just began to exhale more and more and more. Not out of a sense of relief, 
but as a sense of sorrow, as a sense of sulking, as a sense of loss. And so he just slowly began to walk away. Closer to his wealth and the comfort and the security that he was sure that those things would offer him, and further away from Jesus. It's a haunting image, not just because it happened then, but because it is an image that has repeated itself again and again and again over the last 2,000 years. And I imagine that Jesus and the disciples just sort of sat there and watched until they could no longer see the man anymore. Perhaps he'd just gone over the horizon, or maybe they lost him in a crowd. And then Jesus turns to them and simply says, How difficult is it for the wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God? The disciples, were told, were perplexed by that, which of course seems perhaps a bit odd to us until you realize that it was the wealthy in that time and place who were expected or who were thought to have been closest to God, that the reason why they were wealthy is because the Lord was happy with them. He had, he had blessed them. It was the wealthy who they would have thought would have been first in line to get into the kingdom of God. And so they were perplexed, and Jesus saw their perplexion, and he wanted to make sure that they understood. No, 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 really, he says to them, children, really, this is, this is true. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for someone who was wealthy to enter. Enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples' perplexion is still there because they say, well, we need another follow-up here. Well, then who can be saved? If, if even the rich can't enter the kingdom of God, then who in the world can be saved? To which Jesus, again, gives this incredibly great, graceful phrase, with humans, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We remember in this moment the incredible danger of this passage. The rich man experienced the danger, so dangerous in fact that he had to walk away from it. But amidst all of that, just when we might think that all is lost, that none of us have any hope, then Jesus says, but with God all things are possible. One former professor of mine said when looking at this passage, this is this great reminder that grace is impossibly possible. That grace is impossibly possible. So what... Do we do with this story? 
My goal today is not to answer that question for you. My goal this morning is actually to not try and resolve the tension that is very clearly evident in this story. My goal is to not tie this thing up into a neat bow that allows you to comfortably get back into your vehicles and go to your homes. This is an incredibly difficult story to know exactly what to do with. I I was laughing at myself and at other preachers this week. I oftentimes do that. I I was thinking that oftentimes when we preach sermons, what we try and do is we take scripture passages that are sometimes kind of complex and hard to understand. And so we do a lot of research usually, you know, we, 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 we pray through it. We try to see, well, how does this make sense? And then we do everything we can to try to kind of simplify it in some way, right? So that, it's, so that we understand it, you know, and, and so that we can help other people to understand it. But, but, but when it comes to more challenging, uh, uh, more costly, more, more, more anxiety-inducing passages like this one uh, that are actually not easy but are fairly simple, what I find that we preachers tend to do is to try to complicate it. Because when you complicate it, then you don't actually have to really wrestle with it that much. So, for example, uh, we say, oh, well, well you know, um, when Jesus says it's harder you know, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. Well, here's the thing, we say. You know, the eye of a needle was actually, um, it was these rocks that were really close together on this, on this pathway. And, 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 and camels, you know, tried to fit in between them. And, and, and that was called a camel going through the eye of a needle. It wasn't impossible. It was just really hard. But as you begin to dig into that a little bit more, you realize that much of that is actually conjecture. And that we're not really sure that that's what it really means at all. But, uh, but, but it sure is a lot easier to think about it like that than, than to think about an actual camel going through the eye of a needle. But, but Jesus, just take this for a moment. When Jesus said a camel going through an eye of a needle, Jesus may have actually meant an actual camel going through the actual eye of an actual needle. It might really just be that simple. Or we take the, the rich man, as I've already said, and, and we begin to psychoanalyze the rich man, right? And we say, oh, well, I mean, look what he said about how he's followed all the commands since he was young. <laughs> what kind of arrogant jerk says that? The guy's a complete narcissist. I mean, did you see the way he ran up to him? I mean, he, he kind of got in Jesus' way. Jesus was doing something. That was rude. This guy's probably a class A jerk, you know? And we, we, we psychoanalyze him until we make him the most evil person in the world. And we say, well, that Jesus just asked him to sell everything he had because he was just horrible. And Jesus would, would, would never ask me because I'm just sort of bad. Or we say, well, you know, um, money is really, it's just an idol. Uh, It's just a God. And so what actually what's happening here is that Jesus really is just talking to this guy because because this guy is the one for whom money was really an idol. And, And so let's just come up with other idols that, you know, what's the idol in your life? I'm sure it's not money, we preachers say. It's probably, we're not that explicit, but it's what we mean. It's probably something else, you know. You binge three Netflix shows every every year and you or every week. You should only do two. And 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 we 
we come up with idols that are actually almost always more manageable than the idol of money. And so we go through all of these contortions and we take an incredibly simple passage and we make it so complex that people walk away saying, well, who really knows what it means? And then we go home and we don't think about the passage at all. Now, let me give some grace to us preachers who like to do this. Why do we do this? Why do we try and take away the sharp edges of stories like this. Well, for one reason, I told you guys this, the very first sermon of this series, which is that we like you and we want to see you next week. But if I'm really honest, let's also say this, we like ourselves. And we know if we don't want to be overly hypocritical, if we, uh, if we preach a really, uh, on a text and we allow it to just simply be really sharp and difficult, that means that, that we may have to ask those questions of ourselves. And quite frankly, we prefer to not do that either. And, well, you know, there is some truth to the fact that, you don't, you know, if you've got a new Christian or someone who's not following Jesus and you say, hey, the Lord might ask you to do something like selling everything that you have, giving to the poor and following him, we know that's going to be a turnoff. And so why would we even say that? Let's, let's soften it. Let's just soften it all up. Just to, you don't want to turn people away with that message. But what I continue to wonder is this, which is whether or not we try to make stories like this one so doggone palatable that it becomes simply some bland mush that no one is actually interested in digesting at all. It's a bit, if you will, and I'm sorry for the graphic uh, detail on this, but I'll make it anyway. It's like the, like the mother animal who, who, who chews on the food and makes sure, you know, all the rough edges are nice. And so it's really nice and soft and then spits it up and gives it to their child. That's not very inviting to most of us. So I've been wondering this week whether or not we don't do everything we can to, 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 to come up with things that this story, you know, you know well, he's just really greedy or, 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 or money's not really your idol or, or well, it's really just, uh, you know, this camel going through this weird little place that's called the eye of a needle. It, we, we do all of those things so that we never really have to ask the question of what it is that Jesus would ask us to do. It makes it so much easier. But by doing so, the story loses all of its impact. It loses all of its punch. Again, it becomes a mealy-mouthed mound of mush that we have made so easy to digest that it has become tasteless and worthless and incredibly unappealing. And when we do that again and again, 
why should we be surprised as pastors or can congregation members that we are cultivating disciples of Jesus who are wiping their brows because nothing is really asked of them and yet at the same time as they are wiping those aforementioned brows, they are walking more and more towards their wealth and their comfort and further away from Jesus. Pardon my grammar here, but here's the reality that we know is true. If it ain't worth sacrificing for, it ain't worth squat. If it ain't worth sacrificing for, it isn't worth squat. And if we are not willing to sacrifice for Jesus, then we need to be asking whether or not he means as much to us as we say that he does. Because clearly Jesus is asking us to sacrifice a lot of things, but toward the top of the list, make no mistake about that, is our money and our possessions. If that were not so, then the New Testament and the Old Testament would not talk about it again and again and again. So what, once more, do we do with this story? Maybe a better way to phrase it actually is, what do we allow this story to do to us? Do we allow it to make us uncomfortable? Do we allow it to ask us difficult questions? Do we allow it to challenge us? Because the truth, of course, is if we do not or we are reticent to allow it to do those things, then it is very likely that we are the ones to whom we should be most receptive to those difficult questions. One of the things that I think we need to begin when it comes to this story is by simply admitting this very true fact that all of us are wealthy. All of us are wealthy. Now listen, I can already hear it, and it's only going to get worse. He's just trying to make us feel guilty about what we have. I get it. That's not my hope. But I also think that we'll never understand this story and how much it pertains to us if we can't simply be honest. All of us are wealthy. It's really hard for many of us to believe that in this place. I get that. When you are surrounded by uber wealth, it is really easy to think, well, that doesn't mean me. Every single day I drive by a Bentley dealership. Every single day. And when I do, I think those are the wealthy people and I am merely a pauper. But all it takes is an intentional drive into other sections of our city 
And certainly all it takes is going to a place like Uganda or Haiti to readily see just how wealthy we are. If we have running water, if we have food to eat, if we have a nice place to shelter, and by nice I just mean a place that's not going to fall down tonight, then we are wealthy. Which means this story is about us. I realize that there is a question this week that asks, to, with whom do you connect or with who do you think you are, the disciples or the rich man? It might be the disciples, but for all of us, it is also the rich man. Now, you may be saying, well, how could this be? Every month, I come to the end of the month, and I'm like, gee whiz, whew, that was a close call. I only got seven bucks left. I get that. I really do. I understand what that's like. And we just think, man, just man, it must be nice to have a Bentley. You know, I mean, they must have, you know, they have more money left over each month. But what we fail to do oftentimes, of course, is we fail to look back and realize that the reason why we only have seven or eight bucks left is because the whole month we've been spending money on things like eating out or getting reno doing renovations as my family just did or, or, or going on vacation or having a little bit better house or a nicer car or, 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 or traveling sports. And, and, and then we get to the end of the month and it's really easy for us to forget that the reason why we only have seven or eight bucks left is because we've been spending it all shopping all through the month and that that's all of our wealth but it happens very subversively and if we aren't paying attention you won't even notice it This week I heard this uh, or not it was last week or a few weeks ago actually I heard this somewhat apocryphal I'm sure it is story about a monk uh, who had a young disciple. He was a little concerned about the young disciple. And so he, he, he sent him off to a village. He wanted to see if he could kind of minister there in that little village. And, and, and so he, all he had, all the, all, the, all the young disciple had was a robe and, and a lean-to to sleep in overnight. And so he began to minister there. And every day he would wash out his robe and he'd put it up on the roof and let it dry out overnight and and one night a rat got to it and, and ate holes in it and, he, and, and, and so his one robe was useless. And so he, he went and he, he went over and he begged at another village and he got, uh, he got another robe and that was great. And then it happened again. So he had to get another robe and then he said, well, I'm not going to do this. So he, he, got a, he got himself a cat to make sure that he could, you know, eat the rat if it came nearby. Well, that was great, except for the fact, of course, that the cat needed to eat, and so he had to get some milk. And so he, he got some milk, and he began to do that for a while, but then that was, just, that was a lot. And so he said, you know, what's smarter, I'll just buy a cow. And then that way we can have milk already for the cat. Well, that made a lot of sense. And so he had the cow, but then, of course, and once he had the cow, then the cow needs to eat. And so he would go around, he'd find some hay, and he'd collect hay. And, uh, but then he thought, well, this isn't really a lot of work. So then he, he hired out some workers, and, 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 and that way they could get the hay to, to, to feed the cow, right, which could then provide the milk to, to the cat to make sure that there was no rats, so that the, that the road would be good. And, and so this kept going on. And so uh, uh, later on, um, he ended up becoming, you know, one of the, the wealthiest people in all the region. And the, the monk came to check on his young disciple and in place of the lean-to was this mansion. And he said to the, he, he said to the young disciple, what, what happened? And the young disciple said, holy abbot, this was, this was the only way for me to keep my robe safe. 
it just slowly, wealth begins to creep up and we don't even notice how we've gotten to this place. As I heard that story, I was reminded of my white truck. I told many of you this this summer. Last summer, I got a new truck, new to me. I bought it from my father. I bought it from my father. Let's be very clear. I'm 46 years old. I can buy my own vehicle. It was a little under Kelly Blue Book, but that's neither here nor there. I bought it, and I was so happy. You guys know I had this almost 20-year-old Jetta that was well-loved, but was very tired. I was so glad to be done with it. And and so I had this new truck, oh, no problem, okay, just got a new truck. And then, I, you know, I, I came back into the state, and of course, you know, what they wanted, you got to pay, you know, for the, for, the, for the title, the tax, actually, I got out of, because it was from my father, that was nice, thank you, Indiana, and, you know, but you got to register the thing, and so I, I did all that, and, and I thought, well, you know what, I didn't really thought about this, honestly, that's true, I didn't think about this at all until I was on the phone to my insurance folks, and I said, hey, I got to get some insurance, and this may surprise you, but it, it costs a little bit more money to insure a 2015 truck than it does a 2003 Jetta, and I thought, well, man, I hadn't really thought about that, and and then I, I keep going, and all of a sudden, you know, I, I begin to realize after a month or so, you know, um, I, I, when you move from a four-cylinder to a, to a Hemi, I can't even know what it is, a 4.7 liter, I don't know. It's all Latin for gas guzzler. Because what I've noticed now is it seems like there are many days when I'm really just driving from one gas station to the next and hoping I can make it. With the Jetta, I was going two weeks. And then, of course, you know, when you got an old car, you don't really care that much about what it looks like. But when you got a, you know, a, a new truck, at least to you, and it's white, and I'm like, all right, I love this thing. Well, well, that means, you know, you drive by Mike's car wash, and you think, well, gee whiz, 10 bucks a pop, that's nothing. Let's make this thing shine. And all of a sudden, I just, I realized that, that, that here I just got this vehicle, right? And I was like, oh, this is great. And what I didn't realize is that when I did that, all of a sudden, it was going to cost a little bit more and then a little bit more. And it, it, it's so subversive. And then you get to the end of the month, and I'm like, well, of course, I don't, I don't have that much left. And in the midst of all of that, unbeknownst to myself, because I wasn't paying attention, there it all went. And I, and I think, wow, I, don't, I really don't have that much. No, you've got plenty more than what you need. What I realized this week is that Jesus was talking to me. And my guess is that he is probably talking to you as well. And that should make all of us a bit uncomfortable. Which is why I'm so intrigued by Mark's description of how Jesus' listeners experienced what he said to them. Did you notice it? The rich man was shocked. The disciples were perplexed and astonished. I wonder when the last time was that you were shocked by what Jesus was calling you to. When was the last time you were astonished by Jesus? And I began to wonder if perhaps that isn't at least the start 
of a tangible way for us to wrestle with this story. This week, I did my taxes. Always a great time. Um, and my wife uh, never wants to be close to me when I'm doing my taxes because, A, I'm not all that organized, uh, and so trying to get everything, and B, I don't really understand what most of it means, uh, and so I'm, I'm really not much fun to be around. But one of the more interesting things for me every year when I do my taxes uh, is to see how much have we given away to the church and to other ministries that we, that we support. How much do we give away, right? I mean, because that's, you know, you, you kind of do it, you know, week by week or month by month, and you may not really pay attention to it. And, and, and so I look, and I'll be honest with you, there are some years when I look at it and I am embarrassed. And I think to myself, Jerry, you have been a hypocrite. Megan and I, we kind of circle up and we have to have hard conversations. What does this look like? We can't, you know, there is nothing worse than preaching something that you're not living by. What do we need to do different? How can we do this differently? Then there are other years, right, when we look at it and we think, wow, you know what? We, we, we did okay this year, you know? It feels like we, you know, we gave away a pretty good amount. We feel, we feel better about that. It feels like where things are in, in a better balance But the question I wrestled with this year was this. What number would I need to see on that line item? I don't even know what number it is. Probably accountants among us know it's this one. What number would I need to see that would shock me? What number would I need to see that we had given away as a family that would astonish me? What number would I need to see that would make me want to walk away from Jesus slowly but surely? What number might I see that would scare me and excite me at the exact same time? What number would shock you? I thought about ending this right there because I, it's got a certain amount of drama behind it. But I realized if I did, that would actually be the unchristian thing to do. By unchristian, I don't mean how we sometimes mean it, which is just the, the nice thing to do. I don't really care that much about that. But I mean literally the unchristlike thing to do. Because the truth is this you cannot, you should not ask that question. In fact, I would ask you not to ask it unless you realize that at the exact same time that you are asking that question, that Jesus is looking at you and is loving you. That question, what number would shock you that you have given away, should not be asked unless you are in deep and loving relationship with God and you can see that Jesus is looking at you and is loving you. You. This week I watched the Scott and Stan video about this passage, and you should watch it if you haven't. They're really great. 
And I was particularly struck by something that Stan Johnson said. He admitted it was conjecture. We don't know for sure. But he, he said, I have a feeling that if that rich man would have turned around and walked back to Jesus and said to him, Jesus, I, just, I can't do it. I, I know you want me to sell everything, but I can't. I can't do it. Jesus would look at him and say, I know. I know you can't. But come follow me. Come follow me. And together, we'll begin to learn what it looks like to start giving more. Together, We'll begin to see what it looks like to start giving in ways that would shock you. That together, we'll begin to give in such a way that it will start having an incredible impact on the poor in our community. I know you can't do this alone. I would never ask you to do that alone. But together, we will begin to give and give and give in ways that will shock you and in ways that will shock the world around us who is desperate to love something enough to sacrifice everything. Man, all things are impossible. But not with God. With God, all things are possible. For Christ and for his kingdom alone. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. God, sometimes messages are fun to give. Sometimes they are a challenge. I don't know what you would have to say to all of us today. I only know what you are saying to me. But I pray.